When I knew Peter was going to look at all the footage, I said to him, I'm not sure I'm going to like this, Peter. I said, because it was from a very difficult period in my life and it's always looked like I broke up the Beatles. And uh, that isn't the case, you know, but it's the, the film came out and gave that impression and the associated, uh, you know, journalism around it. So I said, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. So he went off to New Zealand where he works and, and lives. And a few weeks later, he sent me back a text saying, no, it's not, it's not like that at all. He said, this is just four guys working out songs, having a lot of fun, said, you know, there's one or two little tense moments maybe, but we, we put that down to that's any family. You know, it doesn't, it's not all just roses. But generally speaking, this was a bit of a rose garden. You know, it was, it was us enjoying being back together, showing each other our songs, learning them and having fun with them. And I think that's a great thing, you know, because as I say, at the time, I, for some crazy reason i got blamed so with the film it really is great for me because i see me and john messing around pretending to be ventriloquists instead of being sensible and singing the song Uh, and we're just doing goofy things and everyone's behaving very normally and in a very friendly manner and so it's great for me it's like It's like someone once told you, you know, all your old snapshots, all the photographs of your youth and everything, you know, represent one thing uh, and you kind of go, oh, yeah. And then you look at them again and you go, oh, this is great. No, look at that. Look at me having fun with Auntie Jin or whatever it is, you know. So that's what it's done for me. It's just reminded me and more than reminded me, proved to me that... You know, it was a great time and it was a very uh, refreshing time, an enjoyable time to us. And I think some people have sort of said, well, you know, Peter Jackson's going to do a whitewash. But the great thing is he can't do a whitewash because it's there on film. Generally, when you see the film, you'll see that um, it's really interesting. And the fact that Peter's um, remastered it means it's got a great quality to it. But it's, I, I just love it anyway. It, to me, it just proves that we were having a great time, that we loved each other, and that we made great music together. And we ended up on the roof playing these songs that we'd barely learned, barely written. I mean, one of them, John has to have the lyrics in front of him on a little piece of paper that he can barely see. But, um, yeah, you know, overall... I think it it proves that there was a great loving spirit in the Beatles that that entered into the music and everything we did. And that, for me, was more than a relief to see it. It was was great. It was very emotional and very uh, lovely to be able to see John and George again um, and just remember how sweet it was to work with them and to and to make this music. My name's Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin.
The Beatles. Naked. So that we can split up, so that you're like doing the chords at like that Arthur Maria thing. Yeah. Yes, she does. Like that on the top. Yeah, so it's a yeah, there's a point where we'll have to concentrate on the guitar for each song, you know, where if it's going to play anything. The guitar in long for the first time when I'm doing Corny's all right in this one, because what he's doing is corny. But it, see, that's that's the thing yeah, that will make it not corny if we sing different words. So you say, I'm in love for the first time in my life. Well, okay, but roughly. Okay, well, we'll do that. That comes later. So uh, just start off with a corny one. Yeah. Because you know, the words aren't that good. So it was, I'm in love for the first time. I think the words should be corny because there's no clever words in it. See, we should, uh, yeah, it should be, yeah, different beats and sort of all onto light things and symbols. Yeah. Boom. Da. Boom. 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 Okay, do it from the beginning. I'm in love for the first time. Sounds like the same old shit. Well, I like the same old shit if it's just clear, you know. So since the last shows where we reviewed the Get Back episodes, each of them right in the moment, just as we'd seen them, we now have taken the time to re-watch and re-watch and make, you know, more observations and notes as we're going through. I've got to tell you, there's a lot of pausing on my part, re-watching, and so much more that I was catching. How about you? Yeah, the same. I think an observation, I made it maybe into the second uh, episode we watched, which really 
comes to the fore when you rewatch is I, I had made the observation that it was it looked like Peter Jackson had done this like an animation. When you do an animation, you always do the soundtrack first and you edit pictures on top of it. And that becomes more and more and more evident of really how little uh, of, and he does it skillfully. But when you really study the footage, you realize a lot, this was all driven by the Nagra reels and he tried to find images to go on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought the same thing when I was watching. It was like, wow, there's a load more unsynced footage than I realized. And it's okay because, as you said, it's interesting, isn't it, that the gold for him lay largely in those Nagra reels. Kind of unfortunate. It really made his workload a lot heavier, didn't it? I'll bet you anything that he was already listening to A.B. Road and, and all of those bootleg Nagra Reel DV, uh, CDs that had been out for years. I, I wonder how long, I wonder if he'd got like a head start on the whole thing because those were available as opposed to yeah. the footage. Right. He's done a fine job, you know, he and his team in terms of, you know, there are parts where you sort of look at it and think, I didn't see the lips yeah. moving there. Or you do see the lips moving, and I'm not sure that that was the dialogue that matched that, but it works really, really he well. He at least resisted something that is there for him, especially he is at the forefront of, of technology. I'm sure you're aware now that there are these programs where you could take that footage and you could make John and Paul's mouths, you know, not doing a clutch cargo, but, I mean, have them actually... The AI will, will can make the can make the face speak, if you know what I mean. And yeah. he resisted that, oh, which I'm really glad he did. I'd rather have it have the sort of Japanese horror movie uh, feeling to it. <laughs> you remember those? Did you ever watch those right. when you were a kid? You know, which the Jap oh god, yeah. In. So it has a little a little of that in there, but I, I, it's so subtle. And you know, you and I and Mark and people like who are students and historians, we're like pouring over every frame. So I think most people, it's just going to kind of go by. And, and I think he does it very, very skillfully. I agree. Yeah, it's not like, I don't know if you remember in the 70s, and we got those ads in the UK, odor eaters, and they dubbed some of them and put an English accent in. And there was a part <laughs> where the woman, the woman turns around and goes, it's in the charcoal and her lips don't move at all. <laughs> well, because it was in the charcoal. Yeah, it's in the charcoal. Exactly. So anyway, no, I think voice. right up front, and I'm assuming you feel the same, it just gets better with every watching, doesn't it? Okay, we had the initial fantastic sort of surprise of seeing how he'd laid all this out in that first viewing. But re-watching it, it doesn't get boring. It just gets more and more interesting as you keep noticing more stuff. Agreed? Very subtle, yes. I, I said that at the beginning, too, when we first looked at this. I had... There seem to be all these like little subtle things going on, but you certainly, upon repeated views, you really do see it as the three-act play. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. I just like the little things you notice. I remember suddenly seeing a lyric sheet near the beginning in Paul's handwriting for two of us, and I went, hold on, what's that? And I freeze-framed, and at the bottom corner, bottom right corner, it says... A Quarryman original, not Lennon McCartney original, a Quarryman original, because they're getting back, aren't they? And I, apparently, a few of the lyrics from around that time during the get back sessions in Paul's handwriting bore that credit, a Quarryman original. Not necessarily accurate, just more he's in the spirit, because I always thought, I'm sure you. Tongue in cheek. That was uh, him and Linda going out on country drives on the weekends. So, so I thought. Right. Although. <laughs> 
it's very much the John and Paul show, isn't it? A lot of this film, we'll get to that. But two of us in the movie just seems so appropriate for John and Paul. Yes. One thing I also noticed, again, it's it gets a bit more jarring when you watch it, and I'm skipping way to the end now, but the end of the film, where you really get short shrift of the final day of filming, which to me right. is... Yeah. It, I really think he's strong-arming Apple, Universal, whoever the kingmakers are, Disney Plus, that, hey, we got we to gotta have Michael Lindsay Hogg's film, you know, because he's the one that takes care of the last day. When you think of it, that's really the climax mm. of his film, I think, is even, you know, the emotional climax, because the for some reason, I, I don't, the rooftop concert is, is more forceful, I think, how, how uh, Jackson has handled it, because you kind of realize it's... Oh yeah, it, it, you know he he truly has it as the the pinnacle of the film, uh, of his film. Oh my god, yeah, it builds up and builds and builds to it, and he he and the Beatles don't fail to deliver, right? You know, it's everything in there that he's thrown in. It, he he really, I think, comes into his own with the rooftop segment, Peter Jackson, in terms of his storytelling. The, all the camera angles he had at his disposal, and I think he's used them brilliantly. The original concept. You know, coming off of that David Frost on Sunday show is, yeah, let's take stuff from the White Album and perform it with an audience. Right. It caused me to go back and look at all of the takes of Hey Jude and Revolution. And Hmm. it's very curious. I didn't really notice it before, but you do notice that Revolution, there's no audience for that. Well, you never noticed that before. Well, not really. I mean, because... Really? I mean, no, because I never... I, you know, you look at something initially, and then sometimes you kind of gloss over instead of really studying it. And as I remembered it, watching it on the Smothers Brothers, you know, people are all applauding at the end. It just kind of went seamlessly in there. And I didn't realize where things didn't match up, you know, once again, where the vocals, you know, you hear a vocal, but there's nobody moving their mouth. So, oh, wait a minute. Right, so it's, right. It, it was very much done like, at least that song was done like a Jack Good thing, you know, where Jack Good would, right. how he would do Shindig, for example. So it's interesting to me that based on the one song that they did do with an audience, Hey Jude, they decide, okay, well, let's get back into live performance, but do it with, you know, a sympathetic audience. And in this case, it was going to be the fan club. We have a thing called scope creep in the in the software world when we're developing software. And the scope creep is amazing to me. So it would have been so much easier if they had just done the original idea of, okay, pick out the best songs from the White Album. George will be happy, you know, because some of his songs are so strong on that. And instead, they just made things so much more difficult for themselves. And then they give themselves this little narrow window of a month because Ringo's got to go make a movie. Well, that's the ridiculous part is the deadline because of Ringo's movie. Um, You know, at least they could have maybe convened reconvened on the other side of it maybe but what you're saying there it's really true you know Paul reveals in the Get Back movie that the original intention was go out there and perform some of the White Album tracks which would make sense being that the album was at the top of the charts when they you know were at Twickenham and yet this is the Beatles and the Beatles move on so at least at least Paul does at least Paul seems to... Well, John does as well, doesn't he? I mean, John's known for that. I think that pot of tea took a while to cook up, though, during this. I mean, he seems very 
you know, non-communicative, I guess, is a good word, right? I mean, he's he's not uncommunicative. Yeah, I mean, at Twickenham, I agree, like on the 7th, Peter Jackson makes a, makes a point on the 7th of January, you know, to show these sort of long shots of John, the camera just lingers on him and he's saying nothing. Uh, and it's actually a, a pretty good way of making it clear that John's not saying a whole lot on that day. It's most likely one of the few days where he actually is strung out on heroin. Yeah, not, yeah which not would the explain the, the, the being late for the sessions as well, you know, trying to drag your ass out of bed when you've been snorting. Right, but, you know, but by the time they get to Apple, I mean, John's completely on form, isn't he? Musically, socially, comedically, and when he's on form, the whole band gels together. Especially when they get to Apple, Paul looks like he hasn't had John's attention for a while, and he's kind of prying it back from Yoko now, you know? Yeah. And and he's really, you know, kind of to the point where there's a, there was an interview with George many years later on TV, can't remember, it was in the 80s sometime, and he said, you know, there were times when John and Paul didn't realize there were other people in the band. Yeah. And I'm hearing that in my head as I'm watching the two of them making eye contact and it's like nobody else is in the room, you know, and they're going oh, for, they have their little private joke going. This is at Apple, of course. I, know, I totally on. agree with you uh, uh, in terms of eye contact. I mean, one thing it's noticeable is they all are making eye contact with each other when they're playing all of them. They're constantly looking at each other. But yes, the main eye contact going on there is John and Paul the whole time. And it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's very personal. And you can see the comfort with each other because most people, when we look at each other, we tend to make eye contact and look away a bit and make eye contact and look away. And I was watching them in this film and often they just have their eyes on each other the whole time. And even if they look down, you know, to the guitar or whatever, they immediately look back at each other. And you see that when the between all four members as they are into a song together it recalls something John talked about years later in the Playboy interviews where he says, you know, and I always thought it was kind of interesting how he phrased it, which was, well, one of the reasons the Beatles broke up was because uh, we knew everybody else's moves. Right. And we were just, and and he goes, when you play with other people, you know, they have other ways of playing. You have to, it's a whole different attention level. And, you know, that idea, I always thought, why are you saying moves instead of sound or instead of whatever? But you could see, uh, even in these cavernous studios, like at Studio Two or whatever, they're they're kind of in this little cluster of, in a little circle almost, of four of them. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I never really thought about that. I thought that that went away when they stopped making Please Please Me or, or, you know, when they started getting into really utilizing the studio. And that also brought up another thing of how difficult this project was because of that no overdub oh, yeah. mentality. Absolutely. That simplifying the, the approach complicates it for them because they've now got to do complete takes without any overdubs, as you said. So that is what really ratchets up the pressure on them. You know, they create their own pressure cooker. All self imposed yeah it also going through this in real time brought up some other observations for me which is it blows away that feeling i always had of what a dark period this was you know they're they're really mm. not 
dealing with each other. And you'd listen to the bootlegs and you'd hear those shitty versions of, you know, shake, rattle and roll or whatever. You know, that actually is probably one of the better ones. But you know what I mean? You'd hear these kind of crappy versions of songs. and, And your mind is painting this picture like, oh, my God, they can't stand each other. They can't even get through these oldies. Yeah. And what you realize is, is all that's kind of intentional because they're, number one, they're trying to disguise their conversation that they're not so happy about being recorded. And right. and they're waiting for equipment to be set up. Yes, all the way through, right? It, you're right. It's like when they get to Apple and they're still setting up the studio, the crew, and the Beatles are just doing some rock and roll oldies and they're not putting much effort in. And that's kind of just because it's just laid back, having a good time. It's very different, as you said, to how it was framed when we just heard the audio. It's not them doing a ton of really bad rock and roll oldie covers. It's them just kind of filling time yeah. and having a yeah, bit of fun. Yeah, the way would, some people might do run up and down a scale just to keep their exactly. hands warm or whatever. Exactly. I, and yeah. also, I think you've probably, we both would agree on this, is the atmosphere, except for Twickenham, which, okay, that's pretty tense stuff at the beginning. Mm. But after that... Why did all four of them feel so bad about this afterwards? Well, I don't know about all four of them. It's been John and George, isn't it? John, you know, said the most miserable sessions on earth. And George, you know, referring to the Beatles' winter of discontent. Uh, But I, I agree, even Twickenham, it never gets really ugly. Now, we don't know what went on when the cameras were switched off. But certainly in terms of what we've seen and what we can hear... It never gets really ugly. It's more nuanced. It's more a bit of tension and, you know, getting a bit pissed off with things. But they never lash out at each other. No, and one wonders, the the whole, that first climax, the idea of George quitting the band. I didn't realize how much, how much is this, was this being affected by his domestic situation at the time? Well, yeah. I mean, right, while all that's going on in the studio, there's At Home, where he's got, you know, Charlotte Martin, Eric Clapton's French ex-girlfriend, is basically living at Kinforns with him and Patty. This is like at the tail end of 68, going into 69. And she, Patty, strongly suspects George is having an affair, and he's denying it. It's the whole thing, you know, you're losing your mind. And she's finally had enough, and she leaves. Uh, the old um, gaslighting. Oh, yeah. that's not. It's not how it looks. You know, he's he's on top of her. Oh, I know what this looks like. She just, you know. Yeah, really. Um, I'm practicing yeah. my um, chiropractor techniques. <laughs> Here's the chronology that we know, and a lot of this comes information has come from Paddy down the years. Is that on January the fifteenth, which is the day that they have a second meeting, the Beatles after George has walked. And that's the day when they basically come to an agreement and he rejoins the Beatles. That same day, Patty, who had moved out, as I said, she returned home on the 15th as well. So this was a kind of bridge building day for George. Um, On the 19th, Charlotte was still on the scene. I don't know if she was still at their home, but she's still in a relationship, it seems, with George. And when we see Patty visiting Apple, that's on the 24th. And she's just returned from a modeling assignment. I think it was in Munich. And she seemed pretty affectionate in, in that. Yeah, they, they kiss on the, on the mouth and everything. And it all looks affectionate. 
Three days later, she actually accepted George's terms for a change in their relationship, where he wanted to be like Krishna and be free to have his concubines. Now, that's so, the best excuse I've ever heard. Boy, oh, would, I, I guess it would, might work. You know, hey, it's, it's not me being lustful. I just want to be like Krishna. It's really, really sad. So that's the backstory. While George is getting into it with Paul and, to some extent, John. Yeah, just like any other human being, you can't really completely separate work and, and life. And right. I wonder now, on reflection, George is kind of like, all right, I've just had enough. Just getting up and walking out at Twickenham. Yeah. He was also just kind of had enough of how his life was at that time, period. So his, and Patty had had enough and, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who knows what's going through his mind? They have those shots of him looking pensive. I'm sure, you know, his thoughts were taken up with what was going on at Twickenham, but maybe also what was going on at home in that moment. So that does that change our opinion of jumping ahead to the 25th when they're recording Because You're Sweet and Lovely Girl? Is Sweet and Lovely Girl Charlotte, or is he is he the Sweet and Lovely Girl <laughs> is, is Patty? Oh, there were dozens of candidates, Eric. I, I'm just wondering. You know, I, I'm honestly, I'm not be trying to be cute or anything. <laughs> well, I love you in the morning, and I love you. And I love you in the morning, girl, and I love you. I love you in the morning, girl, I do. I decided to wear continuity clothes, just with moss growing under the arms. Yes, but when it's put together, you'll just look normal, and we'll look like we've been changing every arm. Kevin, Kevin, can we have some toast and tea, please? You know, it's tea time, it's tea time. Now, man. Now, can we have some more tea, Kevin? And these a gallon in the morning. Do you have access to real tea? I've got nice tea with us. I've got this bottle. Lots of words. Well, they're so easy, you know. You make them up. It's nice, though, isn't it? What's the score, man? This is his last night song. Yeah. And our little blues folk song. Did Jimmy stick about? Oh. When it was just acoustics or something. There's more skiffly. And it's great because they don't need any backing. Getting back to the whole thing of them wanting to move on and putting this pressure on themselves to come up with new material. Near the start of John's five or six songs that he brings in, Only Don't Let Me Down was actually new. And I, lo I love that moment when Paul's asking him, you know, have you got any more stuff? And he's saying no. And the boom mic is hanging directly above their heads. So it's like, OK, you're, you know, tape's rolling and they just they're looking up and sort of smiling and having this conversation, you know, fairly yeah. jokingly. But that's a, kind of a cool moment. Those are the ones where they're aware of being or making it very obvious that they're aware they're being filmed. Yeah. I do tend to prefer the moments where they do seem to be lost in what they're doing and, and, and we're just flies on the wall. Oh, yeah. I mean, that bit at Twickenham when George has left and they're sitting around Peter Sellers' visits for a moment and that's awkward. But John's, you know, really on form and 
making jokes to the camera and he genuinely cracks Paul up. You know, Paul's like just got a glass of wine, I think, in his hand and he's looking down and just really cracking up. And that's when we get to see how John could get to Paul in that way. I'm sure he always could. There's another thing we see at Twickenham that upon multiple viewings, um, and I once again remember reading something about this a long time ago, but when... George quits and they go have lunch, and so fortuitously, I wonder how many flower pots were bugged. We uh, in that. Well, yeah. How room. do they know which table they're gonna? Set I, I, I had to have been multiple ones. It had to have been. That's the only explanation. Neil was there as well. Yoko was there. Linda was there. Ringo was there. But apparently, John and Paul did most of the talking. Um, but was Neil in on it? That's what I wonder. Right? Was Neil completely ignorant of what was going on, or? Was he a part of it? Did he help enable it? It's really hard for me to imagine. Because it's a stunning thing that Michael Lindsay Hogg did there. It's almost like the FBI, right? You know, he's bugging their conversation. If they'd have found out, there's every chance they'd have just gone berserk. Yeah, Um, they might have fired him. Oh, my God. That's why I don't think Neil would ever have been complicit in that, because by extension, you knew about this? Let's just say they do find out. And, you know, Neil would be next. The odds are Neil wasn't in on it. But what a thing for Michael Lindsay Hogg to do, not in terms of only just, you know, the chance he was taking, but I love the fact that he was cognizant of how momentous this was and that they somehow had to get this. Apparently also bugged their phone calls at Twickenham, but those weren't usable. I mean, that's really, really nervy for him to do that. It was, but I think he had caught on to the idea that they're trying to disguise their conversation. There's not going to be any instruments in the lunchroom, and and something just happened, you know. And and the the other amazing thing about that lunch, the, the flower pot conversation, is just the sort of business like way where Lennon's like, "Well, we'll just get Clapton," you know. <laughs> it's like, wow. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, Paul's acknowledging, you know, where he's gone wrong with things and at the same time he's acknowledging that George is right in so far as they just can't agree on anything anymore all of them they can never be on the same page at the same time and that that becomes very clear and that is what I think I said it in the previous shows that actually makes me feel more comfortable with the split the fact that they're talking divorce here in January and while I'm sure they don't particularly want a divorce at least few of them don't it's like they're accepting this they're accepting the fact that they cannot agree on everything anymore and you know so when George says in anthology that when they got to Abbey Road they knew the game was up yeah I can see that it makes sense I always thought that was very negative and that was just him saying that but no I think there was a tacit understanding between the four of them that they were just finding it really hard to get it together but do you, you know, still want to I mean, perform to an audience or do you just see yourselves as a recording? I think we've got a bit shy, you know. I think I've got a bit shy of certain things, you know. Because you know how often, like on albums, we sometimes blow one of your songs because we come in in the wrong mood and uh, you say, this is how it goes, I'll be back. And we're all just... That's why we're wrong to throw away the show because there's no desire. I mean, like... So it's like, if we're doing the show... Then uh, we're going to have to work hard 
So that means by the time a week from now comes, all these songs we've got, but I know perfectly. You know, clearly, I don't want to do anything with songs on the show. No, they just turn out shitty. Like... No, but they seem thinking it's not going to come out great. Won't help. I mean, like, if we cancel the show now, we'll be throwing it away. But equally, at the moment, we haven't got a show, and so none of us really want to do it. I'll do it. I'm not interested enough to spell it. I mean, days farting around here. Well, everyone makes up their minds whether they want to do it or not. Yeah. It's like Mal said last night, if you're going to do the show here, you've got to decide today. And as far as I can say, there's only two ways. We're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I want a decision. Maybe we should have a divorce. Well, I said that at the last meeting. But it's getting nearer, you know. Who would have the children? Dick James. Oh, yeah. We all need you. And, you know, if, if you all can't get it together, that's really very sad. So I think what we should do now is, is let you play a little, and then you all have lunch together. <laughs> and I can give you some more fennel, maybe. <laughs> yes. So should we leave you for a while? I mean, everybody. Yes, yeah. Yeah. The conversation that Lennon has in November of 73 walking up Malibu Beach. Yeah, with Elliot Mintz. With Elliot is, uh, he really does cover that. And he's so much closer to when it actually happened. And he, he just says, you know, yeah, we might have left it a bit too long. But, you know, he thought it was a good time. You know, they ended with Abbey Road. And 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 because Abbey Road, when uh, when they went to record... I want you. She's so heavy. It's only a couple of weeks after they'd finished the sessions uh, for get back. So it, yeah. I can. And as I've stated previously in our, our observations, I will never look at Abbey Road and Let It Be the same way after seeing this series because I see them as so interconnected. I, I totally agree. I mean, all but three of the tracks, as we observed before, from Abbey Road, we hear in Get Back. So I agree, it's all just part of the same, isn't it? The only thing that jumps out at me is that conscious decision of, you know, now that they've recorded an album at their own studio, that yes. they bother to go back to, to EMI Abbey Road Studios. I, I agree. What's that about? Because we hear them in Get Back, I think George says it, John agrees, that they love their own studio. They feel really comfortable there. Um, I know the sound isn't exactly right for what they want, but that could have been worked on. I, I wondered the same thing. Why didn't they go back to Apple? They never really did, did they? They did some overdubs, or, or some sessions anyway, I think, through the first few years. Yeah. Wasn't some of Living in the Material World recorded there? Yeah. It is intriguing that, that they didn't go back to their own studio. I wonder if how much that had to do with George Martin's demands, saying, I will produce it the way we used to do it, but he's, you know, not going to do it under those conditions at Apple. I think he felt on a more confident footing in that familiar studio. I know by that time he was he was already air, right? Associated independent mm. recording. Yeah. You know, whatever his company set up, I mean he was not an EMI employee anymore, but I think he felt more like he was in command of what was going on at that studio as opposed to this one, as right. opposed to Apple. A few more questions here. John and Yoko, as we start you know, going through the Twickenham sessions, they're increasingly tardy. Why? Are they strung out? 
you know, what's been going on? Why are they increasingly late? Likewise, George, you know, I, I think he's sort of complaining that he hasn't been getting much sleep. <laughs> is, well, that be- is that because his girlfriend's been keeping him up or because he's got so much on his mind? You know, what's going on there? Well, as opposed to get back, it could be just getting it. That would keep you up. <laughs> It'll keep get you it. up thinking about it. Oh, I, you know, see, this is, I, I mean, you got Patty at home? I have no idea what this lady Charlotte Martin looked like. I'm sure she was adorable, but I'm sorry. Patty at the height of her powers? No, that's, I, I'm many things, Richard. Greedy is not yeah. one of them. <laughs> now, here's a thing. It was so interesting to rewatch. When Dennis O'Dell is told by Paul to consult John and Yoko about the set designs, and Paul says, they're the artists, right? And it's that kind of sulking that leads to that unearthed conversation, which, again, I'm not sure if we're seeing all the footage synced, but it's, you know, John and Paul not getting along. And, you know, you can understand Paul's frustration because... I'm sure from his perspective, it's like, what's the point of doing all this if we can't agree on anything or at least his thing, right? Um, It's like they're treading water at this point, as he points out. You know, what are we doing? We're just recording albums all the time now. We're not, you know, George doesn't want to perform live. That's a problem. And they don't really want to do these silly films anymore, you know, from their perspective anyway. Um, And it's like, where do they go from here? Because the Beatles always want to move forward. They've kind of come full circle. Now it's get back. Let's get back, you know, to our roots and the original approach to recording. And then what? Well, Paul always, as history has shown us, was very interested in performing. Interestingly enough, Ringo as well. Mm. Uh, To a lesser degree, George. I think George liked being in a band And Paul was the one to recognize that, hey, the technology has changed in a couple of years. People could hear us now if we wanted to get out there. Look what, you know, they missed, uh, you know, the big festivals by, you know, eight months or something, you know, a very short amount of time. And And I think with Lennon, I wonder, especially when you look at what happened with him in the future, just being out of the rhythm of playing all the time, he started losing his nerve about playing live. And also just the instrument of playing in the studio. You know, George makes the point at Apple that, you know, this is great. You know, they've been playing for a month and he's got his musical chops together. I mean, he hadn't been playing guitar really very much since Pepper. He'd been yeah. composing well, more on the keyboards. Pepper, really, when he tried yeah. to become a, a sitarist. Right. And that's the thing at Twickenham. By the time we're getting ready for the roof, they really have got their act together. Again, that dispels the whole thing of, oh, you know, their playing was horrible as a live band, blah, blah, blah. No, actually, they're forced to to get it together. And by the time they're at Savile Row, I think they have. They they really are gelling. And it's a great pity that they didn't take it out. And even George Martin sees it when you watch that. He's like, you really should do something with it. (laughs) You know, that whole... Even he was on board with something that I think George Martin really wasn't on board with, which is live playing, you know, live performance. He, he always seemed to dismiss it as inferior to what we could do in the studio. It must have meant a lot to the other guys to have Martin enthusiastic about their live performance. Right. The Beatles really didn't make many missteps. 
It's not like Elvis or something. You know, you can look at Elvis's career and see all these things. Oh, my God, you know, why didn't he learn from that mistake or this mistake? The Beatles didn't make many missteps. I I think that shyness or that that not playing, not taking this project and going out and playing live dates again, I think it would have reinvigorated them because they all tried to do it within soon after breaking up. They, you know, George was the first one to mount a proper tour. You know, Lennon was doing those various gigs. I know they were all basically charity gigs, but he, even he kind of had this thing, like, I got to get out and play. Yeah. And maybe if they had just listened to Paul and listened to George Martin and done a few dates, uh, maybe it would have worked. Maybe they would have felt better about staying within that structure, just doing their side projects and coming back. The way George, when he's demoing All Things Must Pass in the spring of 70 and he's and he's in um new york and he's i think it was howard smith he's on the radio in new york anyway wplj i think it was and he's like well why should i deprive why should we deprive the world of beatles music you know i think we're going to get together again and we could do our own thing and he more or less i think that's really could have been possible had they got over that little hump because i think for mccartney that was the thing is if we're not going to play in front of people i just want to have my own band because that's I want to go back and do yeah. it again, as as John would call it later in the Playboy tapes. You know, he he said, you know, I really respect Paul for going back to the dance halls, and wanting to do that all over again. And he built it up to arena stuff, and he he definitely respected it. But he's like, I just didn't want to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you're talking about Dennis O'Dell liaising with them in this sort of fragmented fashion about, you know, the set design and and so on. This is all stuff that Brian would have been handling had he been alive and in charge, right? He would have been liaising with Michael Lindsay Hogg and with Dennis O'Dell and whoever, and then relaying back to the Beatles and getting some kind of unified decision before then going back to those guys. And that, I think, is a big part of the problem. They're musicians, okay, and they're having to do all this other stuff now. And I'm sure that that is a big part of the tensions that have been going on, as Ringo says, for the last 18 months. Well, because Paul recognized they needed a daddy figure, you know? Yeah, and I'm, and what happens with Get Back is really a repeat of the approach to Magical Mystery Tour. You know, they're just winging it again. You know, nothing's been figured out in advance, really. It's just a loosey-goosey idea, and, you know, we'll kind of figure it out as we go along, and they can't. And once again, both Paul... Paul decisions, Paul driven. Paul tries that formula again years and years later with Give My Regards to Broad Street. And it still doesn't work. Absolutely. I agree, right? I mean, that's arrogance, really, in a way. Uh, you or know, insanity. Yeah, that it's going to turn out, I'm going to do the same, roughly the same thing with, you know, just a different cast. Kind of similar script here. I don't mean literal script, but, you know, in terms of the approach. And hoping for a different ending. Exactly, you know, and uh, yeah. things that some things write themselves. I mean, obviously, we all have a fondness. I have a, a particular fondness for Magical Mystery Tour because I like it that it's so chaotic. But they'd already done that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, in a 1977 BBC Radio One interview with Anne Nightingale, George said the White Album was when the rot set in. Now, from his perspective, you know, I mean, he's spoken positively on the 5th of January, about how they'd all collaborate on the White Album. I think he said the, it's the only album I've, I tried to get involved with. 
But it must have been that in hindsight, you know, a bit further down the road, is where he looks back and sees that his collaborative attitude, you know, where they can pull the songwriting in a way. Um, it just got him nowhere. We see the others always listening and nodding when he's talking and they don't say anything. Yeah, I think because of the dynamic and how it had always been, it hadn't changed a lot. But the world is changing. How the world treats each individual beetle is different. And George goes to America, hangs out with Dylan, of all people. And Dylan is telling yeah. him how great he is. And then he comes back and he's still, you know, the third banana, you know, or whatever. It's like, I'm yeah. sure he's just, oh, I don't need this, you know. And, and anybody would get frustrated. He obviously subtly did have a great effect on them. It's just that it wasn't enough to satiate him. He was always going to be less. I mean, even that developing that songwriting partnership on a, on a minor level with Ringo, which you see again mm. in uh, re-examining this picture when he's helping Ringo out with Octopus's Garden. This yeah. The other songwriting team that wrote number one hit records, it was after the Beatles, but Harrison and Starkey, you know, and they wrote some pretty damn good ones. <laughs> it don't come easy and yeah. photograph. It's, it's really unfortunate because it's like in that, you know, the secret conversation as such, they acknowledge, they get where George is coming from, and yet they can't get around it. And and yet when they get back to the sessions, even though I can sort of sense Paul trying to be careful, he's still Paul and he's still, you know, dominating. Um, I mean, that's well, the thing. It's like he's got the arrangement. He comes in with the arrangement for his songs. He knows exactly what he wants. Problem is, he also knows what he wants for everyone else's songs. And and it's not like he's yeah. wrong. I mean, the guy's, I mean, he's, it's evident in this film. He's just like, you know, genius, especially at this juncture. He's completely on fire. But as John says in the lunchtime meeting, you know, we go along with some of your decisions. You've been right, but you're not always right. It's showing on repeated viewing. There's nothing mean-spirited about it. It's just he's an artist, they're artists, and they have grown as artists but grown in different directions. Yeah. And there's not always a great overlap. The The fact that even in that period of time, it took them so long to get together to play is a bad sign. And no, yeah. nobody's going to do that because by this point, they know a bunch of session guys can come whipping in and say, oh, this is what you – oh, no problem – and just direct him, you know. Why wouldn't George want to direct how his his stuff should sound, you know? And yeah, um, I think at that point you you realize, well, how could it be? How could they compromise? You know, that would stifle any artist. Oh, I'm I'm walking on eggshells. I don't want to piss off George today. I don't mean to annoy you, George. You know, after a while that gets old, and you know, McCartney certainly. I think he was, as you said, on fire in this period, and then he cools right down for a while, and he has to struggle yeah. to get back there for a couple of years. Yeah. You know the part in Anthology, a clip from the Get Back Sessions, where Paul is talking with Michael Lindsay Hogg at Twickenham in the morning, shortly after he's arrived, and he's basically saying about, we could have these tracking shots from the ceiling, Yeah. right? It looks like they were beginning to implement that because we do get some overhead shots, don't we? We actually get quite a lot of overhead shots at Twickenham using the height there of the space, but it never gets into that idea that he had, which would have been superb, these kind of sweeping tracking shots. 
yeah, he had aspirations of being a director himself, obviously. He directed uh, Hello, Goodbye video. Just doing too much, too much going yeah. on. And, and I think the initial idea was to have completed whatever at Twickenham and then go to the dramatic place and shoot the concert section. Yeah. So the whole going over to Savile Row and the and the rooftop concert, how it was finally realized, wasn't even mentioned. You know, it was like they must have just thought, okay, Twickenham, uh, gonna have all these cool arty shots because we can light everything a certain way. We can have cameras overhead. We can have all this. You know, it's a it's a movie studio. But yeah. then we go out on the road and play in a ruin somewhere. You know, in a desert or whatever, and um, and probably not much more thought than that. I meant to circle back to you were talking about the set design and and Paul saying, "Oh, go show it to John and Yoko. Those are the, mm. they're the artists." But yeah. how they both look at it and say, "It's around the Beatles. We've done it." You know. Yes. <laughs> and the dismissive, and and the fact that Paul just wants to be gets it that off of his plate, but he says the same thing John's going to say. Oh yeah, I mean, on the evidence of what we see in Get Back, that whole thing about with the White Album that they were session men for each other, really, I think it's applies to Paul when it's his songs. That that is what comes through loud and clear is that the others feel like session men for him. I I, I don't see that as much with John's songs. John seems to be always open to ideas, all the way through. He's open. People come up with an idea, and he's open to it. So I think that Sesherman thing is more Paul. When you listen to John's demos, as over the years, uh, good old Yoko made sure we got to hear a lot of it too. Um, when the you know Lost Lennon tapes came out, week after week, I, I would hear, and I'm sure you would hear, hear it too, that John kind of had two ways of writing. He'd write on an acoustic guitar and he'd write on a piano. And all of the songs sound the same. And, and I don't mean the same in they they have the same feel like this is where the writing comes from and it's in his case they all kind of really come to life when people are pooling ideas because then he gets to enjoy it oh here's a surprise you know oh this is what the song can become and i think it's just different ways of different artists thinking paul is a guy who hears the whole thing like a in his head you know just the way uh you know, Brian Wilson would or something. I, he hears this thing and, it, yeah. and he needs to get it as close to that. There's not as much improvisation as John saying, okay, this is my way I write. Here's the song. Now we can take any one of my songs and we can psychedelicize it or we can soul it up or we can whatever. But it's not like Paul saying, I'm going to write a plastic soul song today. You know, I'm down mm. or whatever. I, I just right. don't see that, at least not from the forensic evidence of the demo tapes. They all seem like, okay, the acoustic ones are all strumming, you know, and then then the piano ones are kind of, you know, simple piano. Um, and they just really, I now I understand what John Lennon would say, you know, the studio is really what, once we got the hang of it, is what I was into, because that's yeah. where the surprise, that's where the embellishment mm. comes from. I'll be taking my shirt off. Doing it, dude. I'll play with you. I just gave a tattoo. Yeah. So do you want to try that? Once more. <laughs> you know, Marie, that's what I'm playing. With Felix. With Felix. With Felix. <laughs> One, two... <laughs> and this is something that happened to me quite recently. She came into the bathroom window, protected by a 
speaking is that Paul <laughs> I'd like to have a word with you I've got something of this in the garden I have something of interest for you <laughs> instances of them being snarky either with each other or others around them I caught a few here um, on the January the 10th when Dick James visits there's it's got it's nuanced again you know it's never like overt but Paul is definitely disrespectful towards Dick. I mean, he says that Northern Songs has got Lennon and McCartney and Paul just goes, just about. And Dick <laughs> then Dick then takes the bait and says, what do you mean? You know, Paul doesn't answer. I mean, they were under contract until February 73. But, you know, it's like they just resent whoever they ever perceived as making money off them. And it's not long before... Dick basically sells out. I think that, of course, Klein is, you know, on the horizon at this point, right? Well, not quite yet. I mean, I mean, he's he's looming, but he's not on the scene yet. The specter of him is there because they're aware the Rolling Stones have a much better deal than they do at this point. Yeah, and and look to this day, they've always been resentful of, as they see it, people making money off them. And John said it in the 1970 Rolling Stone interview, pretty much. You know, didn't say that, but there was this resentment towards George Martin and Dick James. He mentioned, you know, and, and you know all these people basically fame by association. What are they doing now? Yeah. That continued on up into um, I. I had to help when when Paul McCartney played his final that that final show that was played at Candlestick Park. They wanted to do a collage in the background, 
for the final song. And so I had to, I helped them negotiate to use some home movie footage and some still images, you know, by pri- owned by private people. And I know that management, you know, Paul was very upset that he was going to have to pay for some of this. So, well, I'm paying for my own stuff was, I think, how it came back to me. I didn't speak to Paul directly, but through, you know, his management. And the po- point I tried to make back is this, well, you know, it isn't, it's your performance, but it's not your, st- you, you should have sent a film crew out and a photographer's out to get everything then that you guys yeah. ever did. Then you wouldn't have to pay for anything. But right. I mean, it is, there. yeah, there, that resentment never went away. Also at Savile Row, there's a point where they're having a conversation. It's the part, actually, I think where John and Paul are having that conversation about, you know, going back out on the road and so on. George Martin comes along and joins in. And I can't remember exactly what he says, but Paul puts him down. And he says, because he says something, George, and Paul just goes pointing at John. Well, that's why I'm talking to him, like not you. You know, and and George Martin just rolls with that, which I'm sure he had to do many, many times over the years with them. That's how he was able to work with them. You know, he couldn't be thin-skinned. I don't think anyone could be thin-skinned around him. And we also know from the Nagras that there are other incidents that weren't left in the film. I mean, we have those few seconds of Alan Williams there, and we know from the audio that he ends up asking for some money or something, and, uh, you know, John tells him where to stick it. <laughs> uh, and we also have a, a bit on the Nagras where they're reading a, a begging letter from Millie Sutcliffe, uh, Stu Sutcliffe's mother, asking yes, for yeah. money. And they're so dismissive. They're just kind of laughing about it like, yeah, like that's not going to happen. Well, and think so, of how but, many people must have. They, it must have hit, up, hit them up for money all the time every day. Oh, yeah. But these are people that they know, right? It's not just some member of the public, but they're, you know, it's just like they're cold about it. I didn't like, um, um, amongst some of the things that Jackson did edit out, as I said, you know, some of those things could have been in there. Alan Williams definitely should have been in there. But I also just don't like some of the politically correct things that have been done, such as the bit of footage of the colour footage from 63, the Beatles come to town, the Pathé News thing. Yeah. And where John does his crip face, they, they've cut that. Yeah. And it's like, come on. You know, that that's just like, you know, airbrushing the cigarette out of uh, I was just going to say, you know. just like that. Something else I noticed interesting at Twickenham, the confrontation between Paul and George, such as it is, it's really, uh, the more I look at it, the less momentous that really is. It's just the, how it was included in Let It Be. But I mean, the little nuggets there are where George says to Paul when Paul says, you always seem to be annoying you. And he goes, you don't annoy me anymore. Yeah, anymore. Right. (laughs) I I figured out that one. And also really interesting to me, after the play whatever you want me to play exchange, George keeps looking at Paul as if like he's looking for an answer, not aggressively, not fixing him with a stare, but he's kind of leaning forward and waiting, you know, to hear his comeback. And Paul just you know, blanks it, basically. He doesn't want to get into it anymore. But so that shows it wasn't really like, you know, an argument argument as such. Yeah, there are these tensions, but George wants to have a conversation. I think he did. I think he wanted respect. I think the sad part is you find out later on in that meeting uh, that happens in like October, late September, October yeah. of 69, where they finally do address it. And they say, you know, this is the way it's got to be. You know, you get four, I get four, George gets four, Ringo gets two, or whatever it was. 
Yeah, I mean, as I said in our review show, you know, of the first episode, it's very nuanced. You know, it's not overt the bust up. So that's why when George leaves on the first viewing, you can always think, what happened there? Watching it again, he's definitely more assertive with Paul in the exchanges and snarky towards him. There's an edge. And then he goes quiet. And then I I love the bit where I'm going to be leaving the band now. (laughs) What what a weird way of saying it. And then John just goes, when? Now. It's like so strange the way that's said. Well, because you got cameras on, you got record. I'm sure that was uncomfortable. I'm sure it would have been different if there was no cameras there. They are aware they're being filmed and nobody wants to come off looking like out of control or an asshole or whatever. So you just said, uh, do do excuse me, boys. Uh, I'm going now. And when are you returning? Oh, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. See you around the clubs, yeah. you know. See you, chaps, you know. Minor criticism, some inaccurate captioning throughout the film. Did you notice, um, you know, things like some of the assertions that are made, no Pakistanis, that was not conceived as a protest song. And Paul was not searching for new song ideas due to them feeling the pressure of their impending deadline. I mean, he's coming up with stuff all the time. So that narrative in the captioning, I disagree with. Also, I noticed some of the transcription of the secret conversation. Some of those lines aren't accurate to what we're hearing. It just fades back. To the immigrants, you better get back to your Commonwealth homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, You better get back home. He knocked Powell and said to the folks, He said, You know the color of your skin. He said, You don't care what it's all about. So Ted Heath said to Enoch Powell, he said, you better get out. Oh, I said, you want to talk? Hey, Doc, you better go home. Commonwealth. Yes. Commonwealth. I came back 
to West Indies and I had a cricket match. I went to, to South Africa right on the to the bat. Oh, Commonwealth, you know you're much too common for me. Everybody say, hey, Commonwealth. look today and we judge with today's values things that we see from the past. And things like no Pakistanis would be seen as extremely insensitive. So they've put a shine on the sneaker. Yeah, but but there's no need to say that he we saw him conceive the song. We watched him. And to then sort of say, oh, this was conceived as a protest song now. No, it wasn't. That's just well, ridiculous. Isn't that retro history thing? That's part of the reason I like letting the archives speak in a documentary as opposed to having people look back because that's just a natural thing. All of us do. Oh, yeah. When I when I told that insensitive, uh, you know, a Polish joke or something, I was really thinking about what's going to happen in Gdansk in 1980, and you know, I, I was really supporting. The Polish, you know, you know, I'm just it, it, people do that. I, that's what Paul does with Blackbird now, right? I mean, now it's about it's about civil rights, and before it yeah. wasn't. So, right. I think that's inevitable. I would like to commend Peter Jackson for even referencing no Pakistanis, because we all would have been sitting there going, "Oh, here's the whitewash," you know, remember that one? So at least they address it. If yeah, they kind of put the shine on the sneaker because. Every once in a while, you see these things that pop about Lenin as well. You know, Lenin is canonized. You know, he's a saint. He's Saint John. He walked among us. But, you know, he also did hit Yoko and hit Cynthia, and he had violence in him. And he learned to be, in his own words, a nonviolent person. But he was a human being, and he made terrible decisions and did some bad stuff. So did Paul. So did Ringo. I think about it, George, which you could argue is the most misogynistic of the Beatles. He's the only one we don't think ever actually lifted a finger towards a woman. But we've made them all saints. And so if you're going to get something made and approved, those little artistic license with the history of uh, actual history are going to happen. And it's it, it happens with everybody. Mm. Something else I find intriguing. You know, we hear John being receptive to a lot of George's ideas and, and to kind of his plight, such as it is, right? So why, given that, 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 you know, we hear him being, you know, and even sort of saying to him at one point when George says, you know, I can go off and do my own album. Yeah, you should do that. So why the passive aggression of having Yoko speak for him throughout the p- first post-walkout meeting at Ringo's home, which prompted George to walk out again? You know, it's just really weird that he would do that. The next day they have the se- the lunchtime conversation and... Now it's John and Paul, right? You know, Yoko's not, from what we hear, much a part of that conversation, if at all. But why on the Sunday did he let Yoko do the talking for him? Maybe he was completely strung out, which is a a dumbass thing to do to go into that meeting. Yeah, but he um, wouldn't surprise me. Think of the the enormity of it, and he has something at his disposal that will dull the nerves, and he overdulled the nerves. That could be could be that yeah uh it could have been a mind game it could have just been yeah but really that, that that's what i'm saying if it was a mind game 
it's so unnecessary. And it didn't work, did it? No, it didn't. Um, going back to something that you said before, and also you said in previous show, you know, about Paul acknowledging the need for a central daddy figure, but also his awareness of the Beatles' historic magnitude. You know, in 50 years' time, people will be laughing about them splitting up because Yoko sat on George's amp. Compare that to the 1963 group mindset of, you know, that their popularity would most certainly only last three or four years, which was perfectly logical. But here we are, just a few years later, and he's well cognizant, isn't he, of where the Beatles stand here. He's going to be the one who's going to pretty, you know, not long afterwards go to Neil Aspinall and suggest him getting, you know, all materials on the Beatles together for a long and winding road documentary. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You can go, there's these little things in Beatles history where suddenly Paul makes a declarative statement that comes out years and years and years later. It You could call it precognition, you could call it ESP, you could call it psychic ability. There's a lot of that with him. You know, there's that press conference in Chicago between shows in 65 where, you know, somebody, the, the usual dumb question about your flagging popularity and he goes you just wait till the beatles are old he goes yeah everybody's gonna love us when we're old and he's Absolutely. dead serious and the whole room cracks up like old you know no one's gonna remember you when you're 27 and he was right and now whether that is an image that popped into his head or it's something he always felt but you know paul in certain periods is a pretty mm. spooky guy he's he's got something going on there and um yeah, yeah. He's really I, I, there's other instances I think I, there's a thing that um, a project I'm working on now, and I was doing some archival work uh, for Larry Kane, you know, who was embedded with the Beatles for multiple tours in the U.S. And there's this one backstage conversation that always stays with me when I transferred it from this master tape, which is Larry is following up with Paul in 1965 about where Paul was, what Paul thought about the assassination of JFK. And what was his feelings in the moment type of question. And Paul starts answering him, and he goes, no, Larry, we got to shut off the tape recorder. And Larry, why? What's up? And he goes, you don't hear this? There's people laughing in back of us. He goes, we can't talk about the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy and have people in the background laughing at like a cocktail party. And what's amazing about that is he is concentrating on an answer of a very serious subject, and he's really thinking about it, and he still has that awareness that somebody two people over is, is giggling about something completely unrelated but how bad that is going to sound in this interview i just right. think the guy's amazing i, I don't know yeah. how the hell he and that's just one of those moments his hyper awareness so yeah he he understood in the moment lennon got it later when you think of it only a few years later lennon is like collecting bootlegs and beatles memorabilia and in 1973 he's kind of when john is going through his nostalgia thing you know doing the oldies record out in california i think john became intimidated in the sense by the beatles legend like let's just leave it you know it's too much to come back to that we can't it's like going back to school or whatever we can't can't be 18 again have to be something else and uh, Paul was willing to say, oh, I, we, sure, we can go back. And he, sheer force of will, he creates Wings and has that big, huge tour of the U.S. in 76, which to me is where all the air went out of the Wings balloon. Like, Paul was like, okay, I've done it. You know, mm. I, I had a group, even though it wasn't really a group. But you know what I mean. Now he just yeah. goes out with his hand-picked guys and does his thing. But I, I yeah, just I, mean, find... I think, you know, John, having founded the group 
And here's Paul in Get Back saying, you're still the leader. You know, you've always been the leader. I think, you know, pride was a chief emotion for John subsequently about the Beatles, you know, as some of the bitterness began to fade. In Paul's case, maybe it went kind of the opposite direction, but where he started off was, I think he was always the one that's been well documented that, you know, he was most into being a Beatle. And so that moment, you know, when George has walked and then he doesn't know the next day if John's coming in and, you know, that fantastic pensive moment caught on camera, there's no way we know what he was thinking. I mean, he could have been thinking about what he's going to have for lunch. I mean, we don't know. But there's a chance that, yeah, he's thinking about how monumental this will be if the Beatles split up. I think he was more aware of that and more caring about that than the others at that point. I think he would have found a way to keep it all going. I think he was trying to. I think that's why he wanted to bring it out on the road. He figured, where did we build camaraderie? Not not when we all moved to the, everyone moved to their palatial estate. Yeah. The camaraderie and, and, and in many ways the writing, you know, the together writing with John, bouncing an idea instantly. It's not like today where you could, you know, get on your cell phone and you know, send a little bit here and that. I mean, you know, there was very primitive technology. So them being out in the, out in the countryside, and him being in the city, you know, there was things just kind of were drifting apart. And mm. I think he saw the road and playing together as how to stay together. Oh yeah, and I think he was right. I think he was right as well. But George was just not on board with that at all. Certainly not with the Beatles. Playing for a minute, John. Yes, all right, I'm trying all right. to talk to you about this arrangement. Thank you. Can we go for lunch? Is it lunch? No, no. Yes. Uh, I think I'll be le- uh, leaving what? the band now. When? Now. Get a few places. <laughs> well, the NME and get a few people. Once they got to Apple. For me, it's basically the Nurk Twins show at that point. Of course, you know, George and Ringo are very present. They're into it. Ringo does look tired and bored a lot of the time, which is part of the narrative for Let It Be, right? That Ringo looks bored. He kind of does here as well a fair bit. Um, George is pretty much in the background, but he does come in and get more animated as time goes along. But it really is John and Paul who dominate. And all this footage, getting to see them, you know, close up and those moments when they don't even know they're on camera or not even thinking about being on camera and they're just being themselves. 
I could still see the 1963 John, right? That face, you know, I'm sort of looking past the glasses and under all that hair. And yeah, I can see the same guy. This whole thing, oh, how much he had changed. Not really. It's the same guy. It really only was five or six years. It's just beetle oh, yeah. years, you know. It's like beetle year, beetle months are like a century, you know. Well, you know, it's the Angus McBean photos, right? The 62, 66 and 67, 70. It's like, look at the change, especially John. Yeah. My my mother in a French accent would look and go, my God, he looks like Jesus Christ. <laughs> said that about George as well. <laughs> well, George, he wanted to be more like Krishna. Yeah, really. <laughs> now, when Billy shows up, right, because we'd always thought, I think George said that he brought Billy to the sessions. Yeah. But that doesn't come over here. What no. we get to see is that Billy was in town anyway, right, for, for work, and he comes by the studio and so on that basis, it was really just great fortune all around for him and for them, because it's brilliant how they're saying, yeah, we need someone to play the keyboard here. <laughs> and who yeah. shows up but Billy Preston? It's like, what a guy to be showing up, right? I mean, you make your own fortune, I guess. But not brought in. It's John who says, you're a Beatle. Yeah. And who also basically suggests them be in the group. And he brings that gospel feel, Billy, and you can just see it. It must have been a moment similar to when they said they first played with Ringo in Hamburg. You know, he just sat in with them and, and the other members just looked at each other and it was like, yes. Yeah, this you, is can it, right? you can see it. You can see it because it really does fill out. And that was kind of a thing at that time, right? You know, Blue-Eyed Soul is coming in and now, you know, there was a religious feeling to some of the songs, Long and Winding Road or, or Let It Be he has a slightly religious feel. Hey Jude. So, yeah. yeah, really works. His sound. And and the great thing is, is Billy is such an accomplished decision maker, a fast, like he didn't need any direction. He's just like, okay, this is what it needs. And yeah. nobody questions him. Absolutely right. I like the fact that we hear it's George who suggests that they should put Get Back Out as a single, right? It's Paul's song. But he sort of says, yeah, we get this done now. We could put this out as a single. And the idea clearly that that will be in time for the live performance, whatever that is, it will already be their single. That never happened. Well, it did happen in a way. By the time Let It Be came out, it had long yeah. been a single. But I think, you know, they were thinking, here, we'll put it out and then capitalise on it. Um, and John also suggests that they could put out a book. Yeah, I so, remember you know, that So part, they're yeah. the ones thinking these ideas all the time. It's just fascinating to hear it in the moment. In the moment, and whoever thought we would ever get this opportunity to see it one time, let alone endless times, or as many times as we want to see it. Whoever thought we would get to hear and see John singing I Lost My Little Girl? Ah, yes, indeed, because we got Paul doing it on uh, was the South Bank show or something in the late 70s. Oh, yeah, well, he's never wasted an opportunity to do it, Paul, but, you know, to hear John singing it is it, just great, you know, just to hear Paul doing Give Me Some Truth. Yeah. Also, yeah. also interesting, we see them as multi-instrumentalists, all playing the drums at different points. Yeah. We see them all playing the bass guitar. We're Ringo, kind of after a fashion, but he's got the Paul's bass in his hand. Yeah. Um, we see, see them all playing piano and yeah. guitars. You know, as John said in the Rolling Stone 1970 interview, I'm an artist. You give me a length of hosepipe, I'll produce a sound for you. <laughs> just really impressive. It's just great to see. 
It is. I, I, and we're obviously going to see it over and over and over again. Little disappointed when I heard about the DVD release not having any additional material. Well, I suppose we got the additional material, didn't we? You know, um, it was going to be whatever, a one or two hour film, and we ended up with eight hours. So I'm not complaining, although, of course, like you said, greed is a good thing in this point. We want more. We do. Now, of course, you being the fashion maven amongst us here. Oh, yes, I was the fashion plate, yes. So, I mean, you must have been really, really taken with Glyn John's wardrobe throughout this film. There's a costume change from Glyn every day, and my God, his clothes give George a run for his money. Um, I I notice that John and Paul at this point, it's no longer 1967, their attire's pretty drab, isn't it? Privately, at least. Um, But George and Ringo, they're still kind of, you know, pushing the fashions, and uh, Glynn's right there with them. Ringo, uh, on multiple occasions, is is wearing stuff left over from their stage days. There's a right. couple of times he wears shirts that were used on the 66 tour of America, for example. Hopefully washed. I think maybe they were feeling like, we're making a movie, you know, we should look... It's It's the late 60s, you know, George's wife is a fashion model... And, uh, you know, Ringo is Ringo, you know what I mean? He's, he's a showman. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that they called him, you know, both in Let It Be, you know, they call him rich every once in a while, so. Yes, yeah. It's really interesting, the bit when, you know, it's just, again, incredible that the Get Back project coincided with Klein coming onto the scene. And so we actually have John, you know, that, first of all, that the appointment's being set up for the meeting, then he goes to the meeting. Then he's talking to George and Ringo about the meeting and then to the others. And so we're watching this play out in real time. And the thing I noticed watching it again is when John asserts to George that, you know, well, if you guys don't want Klein, I'm, he's going to manage me anyway. That's a fracture right there from John. It, it's quite stunning. It kind of flies by but what a thing in a way right the Beatles were always all for one one for all and how would that have played out had it been only John how was that going to work right that's not going to work in a group setting where you've got one you know your manager representing you on your own it's happened but it's never conducive to unity and harmony so that's a kind of really bullheaded thing coming in there. I was kind of surprised because he seems to be quite diplomatic throughout, John, much more than we might be led to believe he was. Um, he's a group player in every sense of the word. And as a leader, he wants to hear other people's opinions. But this thing with Klein, it's just like he's all in right away. And I get it. Like Ringo says, you know, he's our con man. <laughs> yeah. They knew what he was, just like they know who Magic Alex is, right? They know who they're coming up against here, but they think this is just going to be a slugger in their corner, if you like. Um, And it's just surprising to me that he would put it out there and say, well, if you don't want him, I'm going to have him. Of course, it, it ends up, that's where Paul finds himself, right? That he's the only one who doesn't want him, and it's a three to one vote against. Yeah. At the time, in the moment, they might have just written it off as, oh, that's just John, you know, just making a threat or whatever. You know, now you know what happened, and that's much heavier in the context of history. Mm. At the moment, it might have just been, maybe they didn't even really notice or weren't really listening and just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Another question. 
Who was the Beatles' deep throat? Who was leaking information from the set, right, to Michael Housego for his tabloid articles? About, you know, I mean, they never question it. Maybe off camera they did. But on camera, they're never sort of saying, well, who's been putting this out? How did he find this out? What's your theory? Well, who was it? Who would have been leaking? It wouldn't have been Neil. I don't think it would have been any of the other Beatles. Um, Anyone on the crew. It could have been just anyone, couldn't it? Could it have decided to make an extra make an extra few quid? Do you really think no? George wouldn't go to the press. That's no, I'm, the last I'm really. Thing I'm just thinking out loud. I don't. I'm... <laughs> no, I really. I mean, that would be the bigger shocker of all. George going to the press. I don't think so. Hmm. No, yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard to know. Somebody on the crew who knew somebody who knew. You know, it's, there's so many people around that you're not thinking about the cameraman and the soundman, and the yeah. temptation must have been unbelievable. So if somebody's waving a few. A few quid around, then, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what happened today, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in conclusion, I mean, some of my favourite moments of the film, aside from the rooftop, because that's what everything builds to, and it is, it's magnificent. But other favourite moments for me, of course, get back. I just love the fact that we see that song from conception to completion. I mean, how magnificent is that, that we get that? I, I love seeing George sitting at the piano, you know, playing the piano and composing on the piano. Um, it's, it's just so many gems. And I, I've now watched each episode three times. And there's going to be more because every time we watch it, we're going to notice more. I like the human moments when Dick James is out there describing, you know, obviously they're thinking it. The implication is we're not writing fast enough. What else do we own? And Dick James is out there, and and they're kind of going through the acquisitions that he's made. And Paul sees Carolina Moon is one of, is now a northern right. song essentially. Yeah, and he just without thinking goes into his uncle, becomes his uncle, his drunk uncle at a party who always does <laughs> Carolina Moon. I mean, yeah. Those are the moments to me because it just fills out the character of the person as opposed to the epicness of the artist, like the idea that Paul. Does that like I? I there's evidence other places where Paul's doing voices and cracking John up and things like that. It's just the way he instantly goes into that. It's so unguarded, and Paul to me is always somebody who thinks so carefully before he presents anything. Uh, for him to have just launched into that was just, uh, you know, more of that. Uh, that that stuff just cracks me up when when um, you see that really 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 regular guy human side of things. It's very funny to me. Yeah, and. That's what I was going to say. I mean, what Get Back does, amongst many other things that it does well, is it normalizes the Beatles, right? It it shows you how ordinary they were in many ways. They are the guys next door, super talented guys and living extraordinary lives. But there's just that down-to-earthness, if you like, about them. And what I really love is that they're likable. You know, it's, it's like seeing them... Oh, naturel as as such, I don't really see a whole lot of ugliness. We know that there was ugliness, there was ugliness to come, but it's just on a human level, and uh, I, I just got to love them all over again watching this. And seeing this looking so magnificent, there it comes out of this time capsule looking like it was shot yesterday, outside of the fact that, you know, you're very aware because of the 
technology and I mean the technology that you're, that's being photographed and by the fact that they're all in their 20s you realize oh yes this is 50 something years ago but only the Beatles you know who else could do this could like hide a 10 hours worth and nine hours worth of stuff for 50 years and it comes out looking like it was shot yesterday I mean just it's just another kind of weird happy accident in their story and I still think there's a couple of more surprises in store for people. I really hope that Peter Jackson gets all of that footage from the first two weeks they were in America that was shot by the Maisels brothers, because I think that he's the man. He could take that and turn it into a prequel to what we were watching with uh, with Get Back. Yeah. Well, wait for the collector's edition on DVD and Blu-ray. They'll have the extras. Absolutely. You know it will.
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. I've got a feeling. Well, I've got a hard on. Everybody had a hard on. <laughs> Everybody had Except a hard on. Except for me and my monkey. <laughs> Everybody's been fiddled in.